Hello everybody, my name is Josh Rhodes and I want to welcome you to the last Retro Monster Truck review of 2021. Going into 2022, we all know that it is a famous anniversary for a certain black and green truck out there. So this month is dedicated to the Gravedigger machine Dennis Anderson created way back in 1982. So for the last Retro Monster Truck review of 2021, we're talking about episode number one of St. Louis 1999 World Finals Zero. The first World Finals, technically, for Monster Jam. And Dennis wraps up a points championship in these two episodes from St. Louis. Now, we're covering the first episode of St. Louis this week, and the second episode the following, right after Monster Trucks 2000. The rest of the month of January, you might ask, will be Gravedigger Month, ladies and gentlemen. Celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Black and Green Wrecking Machine, and I can't wait to bring you the shows that we've picked out for Gravedigger Month. I think y'all are going to really enjoy them. As always, thank you for the follows on Spotify and the downloads on Spotify, as well as all those likes, comments, and subscriptions on our YouTube channel here for the Retro Monster Truck Review. And don't forget to leave us a five-star Apple iTunes review as well. It really helps get this podcast out there for more people and more eyes every week so we can be seen by everybody. Let's just hop right into it here. This is St. Louis 1999, episode one from St. Louis 1999, here on the Retro Monster Truck Review. He's nuts. Because we just like him. He's got a swamp in it. Anything for the crowd to scream. Houston! Brave diggers in their house! Taurus and Grave Digger! Grave Digger and Taurus even digger pops it out! Oh yeah! He raises up! Grave Digger with a successful buy run and a hairpin turn. Yes. Right here, ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Anderson and the fans are the ones that drive me. You know, when you hear them cheering for you, and I just set this driving style way back when I first started, and it's a reputation I built, and I got to live up to it. That time, once again, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Retro Monster Truck Review. I, of course, am Josh Rhodes, and with me, as always, is Matt Stoltz over here. And, Matt, this weekend we're talking about the original Monster Jam World Finals. You could call it Monster Jam World Finals Zero from St. Louis in 1999. Nelly says it. Mm, you can find me in St. Louis. You certainly can. We've covered St. Louis uh, 2008 here before, but this really shows you how far that Monster Jam and the promotion itself has came since this event to the 2008 event. This event, the track is very complicated to an extent, but at the same time, it's more simple. To a degree, yeah. We're talking about a racing-only course here. This is the final year that 
freestyle was done kind of a post-show exhibition and kind of just for fun and then we start to see the tracks transition to a balance of racing and freestyle obstacles for the year 2000 so the track designs really changed from here on out this is kind of the pinnacle for me of racing courses in a stadium because there's a lot going on on this stadium floor my friend yeah, there's a whole lot going on on this floor. April 3rd, 1999 is when this event took place. Obviously, it's the United States Hot Rod Association's Monster Jam on TNM Motor Madness. One of your hosts, as always in Motor Madness, Mike Hogwood and Scott Douglas, your live event call. You can hear him in the background throughout these entire events uh, that were broadcast on TV is Joe Lowe. And, of course, we got Dan Moriarty in the pits of the Trans World Dome. Yep, this was before Edward Jones came in. And I uh, put the sponsorship down for Edward Jones Dome. This is the Trans World Dome, of course. And we had an attendance estimated at about 49,800 people here. Big crowd here for the World Finals. And it was kind of advertised a couple different ways as I was doing research for this show. They, Some of the papers just had it as a U.S. Hot Rod Monster Jam. Some of them had them listed as Motor Madness Monster Jam. But none of them actually said World Finals that I could find, which was interesting. But uh, that's what they're calling it here for the TV broadcast. It's the final points event for the 1999 season. And back in the days, in this time, your your whole season was pretty much first quarter for U.S. Hot Rod. And then we kind of got into the hit and miss summer shows every so often. But the large chunk of the schedule here was this January through early April time frame. Yep, uh, good old first quarter here. As we head into the gateway to the West, our show's going to start with Dan Moriarty on the floor. He's joined quickly by Hogwood and Douglas, and then Dennis Anderson, who says it's the last stop on the tour. The cameras zoom out, and I really love this shot, by the way. You see the incredible size of this floor here in St. Louis. As we hear Dennis say in the background as Mike and Scott walk off, he says, who are those guys? <laughs> yeah, and I love the giant USHRA shield that they're standing on too that's painted onto the event floor that's so cool i love to see that they did it at a lot of those shows back then but you really get a good shot of it here and as you said that zoom out to kind of show the vast amount of space that they have to work with here in the twa dome really really cool and gives a scope of how big these trucks are and the the venues that they run in these guys are teeny tiny out there on the event floor yeah, and this is the second biggest floor at the time in uh, the United States, if I remember correctly, other than the Superdome in New Orleans. This is the giant floor, and there's still room on the sides if they wanted to add more dirt if they could. Obviously, they don't. They really haven't ever. They've always left that kind of side, a little bit of concrete there for everybody to walk on if they need to. But still, if they could add a little bit more dirt if they wanted to, that's how big this place is. This place was the perfect candidate for an S-course inside, and it just never happened. Yeah, I've said that for years as well. This was a great place to do an S-course inside. Same for the Superdome. They could probably fit it in there. Uh, as we move on a little bit, though, we could, we could talk about what kind of courses could fit in this place for days on end. It's that big. But we move on. We have Mike Hogwood there with Mr. Tom Mintz, who many consider to be the favorite this evening for this first World Finals, World Finals Zero, as we'll call it. Uh, Tom wants to win. He wants to savor it for the whole off season right here. Tom kind of joined the series midway through and kind of went on a little bit of a winning streak. He kept taking that flag from Dennis Anderson, and Dennis finally got it back the week before this in the point series in Nashville. Yeah, you know, Tom runs in, and Orlando kind of steals the flag away from Dennis as Dennis had a mechanical issue in that semifinal run. They were kind of even to that point. Who knows if Dennis doesn't lose the ring and pinion, what could have happened, and maybe it would have changed the whole scope of that season. But they went to an untelevised show the following week in Jacksonville. 
I think Tom takes the win there too. So he's kind of on a roll, kind of joining here mid-season, middle of February, and he rides this wave for a good way through March. And then Dennis takes the flag back in Nashville, which I think you guys have covered here on this show. I was not a part of that one, but good listen. Yeah, it was uh, Mr. Cheech, Nan Cheechagosh from the Crush This Monster Truck podcast. He joined me for that one. We covered that Nashville show. Uh, good event, a good heated discussion between me and him on there. But as we talk about Tom Mintz right here, he sure did play a spoiler at a lot of the, uh, these later events in 1999. And uh, 99 is really where Tom started to get noticed. And in the following year in 2000, we all know what happened. And that's when he broke out driving the Goldberg machine as he swapped in Atlanta from Bulldozer over to the Goldberg machine. And from that point on in 2000, geez, Tom Mintz was just untouchable in that truck almost. This is where Tom really becomes the superstar. He breaks through that ceiling where he was always real competitive with Monster Patrol, would often steal the show for a lot of people. But all of a sudden now his name and that truck bulldozer are starting to be shown on the marquee due to the success that he's got here. Having the company connection certainly doesn't hurt either, but I like the little rapid fire interview session they do here where each of the guys is with one of the competitors on the floor. You mentioned Mike is down there with Tom. We do a quick uh, graphic shot over to Scott Douglas, who's talking with Dan Patrick. Yeah, and Dan says, despite not winning an event this season, it's still been a great year. He's only broken $500 worth of parts. He, of course, says uh, he should shine on this course, which I agree with. This truck on this course, it should shine. The suspension alone should soak up a lot of these jumps. Uh, he's another guy, though, that would kind of break out after this year, but in a different way. Dan Patrick, obviously full-time independent monster trucker at this point. But in the years to come, Patrick Enterprises would grow, and he would be supplying Monster Jam and Clear Channel Entertainment a lot of Patrick chassis. And those chassis are really the highlight of the early growth in Monster Jam. They really are. You know, this is the first year um, in 2000 where we have the company fleet that is really being built with similar trucks that all have interchangeable components that the company owns as the fleet's getting built. So Dan delivers four chassis for the first quarter of 2000. Uh, two of them are ready to go at the beginning. Two of them join halfway through. That's your wrenchhead.com, your Medusa, your Sting truck, and then the truck that would eventually go on to become Spider-Man. So those four chassis, kind of the start of the Patrick Enterprise, excuse me, Patrick Enterprise's portion of this Monster Jam fleet, and the seeds are all being kind of planted here in mid to late 1999. We move on from Dan Patrick. We head over, and we see that Dan Moriarty is now with Gary Porter, and Gary explains that he had some up and downs this season with a lot of breakage, uh, but it was still a consistent one for him as well. It's mentioned here, by the way, that Gary Porter has sold the Carolina Crusher team to Paul Schaefer. Porter will continue to drive and campaign this truck throughout first quarter of 2000, but would eventually step away from Carolina Crusher entirely in August of 2000. It wasn't until 2014, Matt, that the Carolina Crusher name was leased by Monster Jam for its 30th anniversary, and uh, Gary drove that truck until the end of his career. It was a different body style in Carolina Crusher. I'm not sure if Gary really liked the body style or not. It was the old uh, Captain America body mold, but it was painted up like Carolina Crusher. Uh, Gary ran it from 2014 to 2017. He actually won a Monster Jam Arena Tour Championship driving the truck. And then later that year in 2017, he would hang up the hang up the, the driver's helmet over there in Hagerstown Speedway after, of course, winning an event championship. Kind of. You know, we, yeah, we've yeah. got the news here lately that Gary is going to get back behind the wheel of the crusher, though, 
one more time at TNT Motorsports Unfinished Business in Raleigh, North Carolina, next April. So um, I'm interested to see how that's going to play out. I think Gary's probably got to be the favorite going into this event with the Carolina Crusher name back in that old name once again. This may be the swan song for a lot of these guys. Gary Porter, though, going to go in as the event favorite on my book. Yeah, I would say he's also the event favorite of mine as well. Uh, as far as I know, as far as the field has been announced, we've got Mike Wine, we've got Gary Porter, and we've got Kid Rarig that's been announced. Uh, probably the most seasoned guy behind the wheel and most current guy behind the wheel, perhaps, would be Gary Porter. I know Wines drove here and there, but Gary, as far as running a truck consistently, he's the guy that's done it the most current of the three that have been announced so far. As we move on to the next, we've got... Mike with Mr. Scott Hartsock saying that he is a strong driver. He has won two events this season. And uh, Scott looks like he's going to go to the winner's circle right here as well. The classic Scott Hartsock interview. And this is something that a lot of people kind of forget and look over when they talk about the legacy of Scott Hartsock. They always point to those big breakout wins in 2000 and later where he was going up against Tom Menson Goldberg, takes the win there in Orlando, which we've covered here on this show. But really, Scott starts getting his first big TV wins here in 1999. He wins in the Alamo Dome. He wins in the RCA Dome. He's really stacking up these wins kind of earlier than a lot of people, for the most part, remember. Yeah, and like you said, or like we said in the uh, Orlando 2000 episode, he's really a verging and breakout star here in 1999. Like I said, he wins those two events, but in the year 2000, he's going to get that big win over Goldberg, which was driven by Tom Mintz at the time. And for some reason, that 2000 season is just so well-remembered by a lot of people. A lot of people almost forget about 1999 and the fact that Scott Hartsock's out there winning and beating these guys earlier than what they uh, really think. Hartsock's going to go on, of course, to have quite the career with Monster Jam, and the fourth edition of the world, or excuse me, the first edition of the world finals, he's actually in the final with Tom Mintz and Goldberg. That's the next year in 2000. Then the fourth edition of the world finals, he's actually the guy that beats Tom's streak in Vegas. So without Scott Hartsock, there's a lot of history in Monster Jam we don't have. For sure. You know, Scott was really known as the one guy on a regular occasion that could go toe to toe with Tom Mintz on the racetrack during those years. Dennis yeah. didn't get that much opportunity to go up head to head against Tom. Um, very rarely did they actually face each other at a lot of these events for as many TV events as they did. They only ran against each other. What, you know, three or four times. I think Scott may have run Tom more during those TV years. So the rivalry really was the independent there with Gunslinger going up against Tom and Goldberg, the hot shoe. And it just made for such a great storyline. You've got your, your Gravedigger and Goldberg, Gravedigger team, Mentz, Max D, whatever Tom was in at the time. That rivalry was established, but the one that was even more budding throughout those years, I feel, was Tom Mentz versus Scott Hartsock. Yeah, I agree with you 100% right there. Uh, we lost Scott Hartsock earlier this year to an unfortunate accident. We wish his family and uh, everybody well down there in the Florida area from uh, the Hartsock family, Oldsmore, Florida, I believe. Uh, as we move on to our next guy here that's considered a favorite, Scott is, of course, with Paul Schaefer. He said this is the biggest track they've ran on all year. He's made some big changes. Actually changed from a 6% gear to a 3% gear to increase some mile per hour out here on this course. And Paul Schaefer is another guy here at the end of this 1999 season that's going to go away for a while. But here he's actually second place in points right now behind Dennis Anderson and Gravedigger. 
yeah, Paul kind of buying up a lot of these names. And one of the original plans kind of was that Paul would supply a lot of the trucks for the 2000 season to be kind of the Monster GM fleet. I think he was looking for a big, you know, buyout that unfortunately just never came. And they still did use his trucks on a lot of the other shows and headlined a lot of events in that 2000 season that were not televised. But all these names that we see here in 1999 as superstars, barefoot. Monster Patrol, Carolina Crusher. He bought Boogie Van by this time as well. They Wild Thing, Rampage. Yeah, they all disappear off of TV. Uh, Wild Thing we got a little bit here in 2000 because I think Tony might have still owned it at that point. But the rest of them all kind of went to headline, not necessarily B-level shows, but the shows that weren't televised in a larger markets each week were a lot of them headlined by your Barefoot, your Monster Patrol, all these other trucks that were – an asset to Paul Schaefer, and he was using those names at that point. Yeah, and he would use those names later on in his own promotion and his own events, and uh, eventually would kind of become a little bit of a competitor, I guess you could say, with Monster Jam, running his own events with his own trucks. His trucks, of course, would be going out on, I believe, the Monsters of Destruction Tour as well, and you would see them occasionally from there with Monster Patrol, Carolina Crusher, Barefoot, those names. But at the end of 1999 right here, this is kind of the last big hurrah that you would see these bigger names all together in one place. Yes, indeed. And again, the TV tour really changes up for 2000 with a lot of the fleet trucks coming in and the corporate sponsors that were behind them. Uh, SFX did a great job of negotiating those deals for, you know, wrenchhead.com and with WCW. So it kind of displaced some of the other names that were established at that point. But like we said, on the live event side, those guys were still out every weekend campaigning these trucks. And we head down to Dan Moriarty is with Mike Hogwood now on the floor. And he's saying, Brian Womack and Barefoot's the one to watch because he's the hometown guy. Um, Scott then joins the conversation, says, hey, even keep an eye on the West Virginia Mountaineer. Uh, he, he may do well, but Equalizer is Scott's dark horse for tonight's pick on the racing course. David Morris, great racer overall at this time. Great racer overall, and still 11 years later, piloting the truck that won the 1989 TNT Motorsports Championship. Virtually the same looking vehicle. Now it's got obviously a lot longer coil spring shocks on the sides of it, but still, the truck looks great, by the way, here in St. Louis 99. That classic blue and white equalizer, just there's nothing that really beats that on a Silverado, as far as I'm concerned. Or, excuse me, S10. Yeah, the S10 body looking good, the later model S10, and equalizer really. Still one of the top names in the industry at this time, and it's another one that unfortunately we wouldn't get on TV much after this, but he was out there, David Morris, still running on a lot of the SRO, well, not SRO at this time, Pace Motorsports, SFX Entertainment shows through you know these early 2000s. He's still out there campaigning every week, just not on TV. Hey, I got to throw a thing out here, too, by the way, to anybody that's listening to this that might be having influence on this Raleigh, North Carolina event, the TNT event that's going to be happening again. Uh, you need David Morris and you need to just go grab the truck out of the Hall of Fame and let him drive it. <laughs> I think that truck would stand a chance against hey, today's never, trucks. You never know what may happen. We'll keep tuned to the uh, further announcements coming up. Our full lineup of trucks here, Matt, though, we've got a stacked lineup right here. We've got Samson with Hall of Famer Dan Patrick behind the wheel, West Virginia Mountaineer with Robbie Gray, Avenger with Jim Kohler, Reptoid and Jim Jack, Executioner, another Hall of Famer with Mark Hall, Little Tiger with Brian Bartle behind the wheel, of course, Barefoot and Brian Womack, King Crunch and Scott Stevens, another Hall of Famer, Gunslinger Scott Hartsock, Cyborg with Jack Coburn, a Hall of Famer as well, Gary Porter, obviously a Hall of Famer, Bustin' Loose, with Ron Nelson, Bulldozer with Tom Mintz, 
equalizer David Morris, a Hall of Famer. Dennis Anderson and Gravedigger, a Hall of Famer as well. And rounding out our field, Moss Patrol and Paul Schaefer. I count seven of the 16 trucks already in the International Monster Truck Museum and Hall of Fame uh, in terms of the drivers of these vehicles. So a stacked lineup. This is one of the biggest shows that Pace and SFX have done at this time. you got to remember, 16 trucks at a stadium event was not the common thing back then. Uh, a lot of times you'd have eight, maybe 10 trucks at a stadium show. Arena shows were getting you know, between four and six trucks in most cases. So a 16-truck lineup, really, really a big deal here for this St. Louis show. Yeah, like you said, the 16-truck lineups that we would see later years with Monster Jam is uh, just something that would kind of be built right here. This is kind of where you would see this format kind of start to evolve and take place. Uh, interesting note here, too, none of these trucks qualify. This is a blind draw in this bracket. So in our Nashville episode that we covered with Dan uh, a little while ago here on the Retro Monster Truck Review, it's in our archives if you want to listen to it, they qualified at that event and they set the field, but there were only eight trucks there. This is double that going into this event. It's a big stadium show. You've got almost 50,000 people here, and you probably want to get them out on time. So I understand doing the blind draw here for this event. Yeah, most of these shows all did not have qualifying, so they kind of instituted that, I think, for 2001, where they started going back to having qualifying for the TV show. I think that was kind of at the request of TNN. They kind of wanted to show that a little bit more, um, not only just to fill the TV time, but to kind of show the competition side of it a little bit more. So these 99 shows, and as well as 2000, no qualifying, just a blind draw to set round number one. We go into a segment called How It Works with uh, Dan Allen explaining that they were able to make a lot of the obstacles out here with the amount of dirt that they had to work with. And they had a lot of work dirt to work with. I think he said uh, 5,000 square yards. I could be wrong there. But uh, drivers say that this is going to be a challenging course. It's also going to be a power course. So you're going to be putting the power to the ground, but you're also going to have to be careful because as soon as you land off of the cars, after you're, let's see, you go over the roller hill, you land off the cars, you got to set up for a corner. And as soon as you come out of that corner, you've got another roller hill followed by a double that you have to hit. You go down that straightaway, you got to go into the final corner, which is only marked by one turning pole. They got that one turning pole right there. You go around another jump that's on the outside, and then you have to find your way back over the roller hill that you started on and the cars that you jumped first. During this time and this era, it was always a big challenge for these guys to make sure that they got around a turn and lined up for the correct lane because there's so many lanes in mm -hmm. this course and only a few of them being used for monster trucks. The rest are being used by pro stadium trucks, the quad wars, all the other events that they had going on here. So there's a lot of nice decoration out on the track. They've got the banners. They've got the streamers. They've got the Christmas trees. The cars are painted up nice. We've got all the jumps dressed up with chalk lines. It's a really nice presentation i think it makes for a great look for a motorsports competition yeah it's a great presentation out there on the floor and like you said a lot of these jumps that are out there aren't even for the monster trucks they are for your pro stadium trucks your quad wars uh the pro stadiums would actually have a virtually similar course but they would start and they go around the outside of where the monster trucks were so the monster trucks actually had a really tight st louis style here with two very long straightaways with jumps on them so this is a, a really a big high horsepower track, but you've got to be able to dial in that horsepower and actually drive it to get around this course. And you got to keep the thing kind of in the chute, as it were. You know, yes. you've got jumps on either side of you as you're landing off of some of these obstacles. If you get out of shape, you're going to be in big trouble in a hurry. Yeah, potential for some high-speed accidents as well on this course, and we'll keep an eye on that later in the evening here. Round one's going to start here. 
It's going to be Executioner with Mark Hall behind the wheel taking on Dan Patrick and Samson. And I got to tell you, this is a heavyweight matchup to start right here. It really is. We didn't get to see a ton of Executioner on the TV tour for 99. We did get him at a couple of events here with Mark Hall. The truck, I think, is looking really good. It's really fresh. This is where the Hall brothers had really started to pick up their racing program. And uh, it starts to show here because the performance level going up against one of the top trucks, Dan Patrick and Sampson, you know, back on the previous year, maybe in the Motor Madness, uh, USA Motorsports, the Hall brothers were competitive, but they couldn't hold a a candle to the power that Dan Patrick had. It's a little bit of a different instance here as we get into this first race. Yeah, very big different instance right here. Dan Patrick's going to grab the early lead. He's got a lot better suspension than the executioner truck at this point. But Dan skies it out over the cars. You can tell Dan, I don't know if he was just testing to see what how far he could leap out or what, but he just skies it out over these cars, easily clears them all. Lands has to set up for the corner. But in doing so, he kind of has to really hit the brakes really hard to set up for the corner, whereas Executioner glides over the tops of those cars, gets a little bit of air off of them, is straight, goes into that corner, and Mark Hall cuts an excellent turn and actually pulls even with Samson right there. I'd even say that coming out of the second turn and over that roller, Executioner may have just a cinch of a lead um, coming out of it. But getting lined up for that last set of cars is the big difference. And Samson, we see, gets a little bit of a better launch and just skies it as Executioner has trouble in that far yellow lane. Yeah, that far yellow lane, unfortunately, is going to end up biting Mark Hall. They come out of that corner. They look like it was going to end up being a dead even race. And then all of a sudden, Executioner just slows down, rolls and coasts to a stop on top of the cars. You would almost suspect it would be a drivetrain issue that happened right there with Executioner. But it's later said by Dan Patrick in an interview right afterwards that it was actually the fuel pump that had failed on the Executioner machine. Yeah, kind of an uncommon failure here um, for Executioner. We see the replay of Executioner kind of a little bit ping-ponging back and forth down that back chute, but overall did make up that time he lost at the beginning over Sampson because, again, as you said, Patrick had to kind of take that first turn a little easier than he wanted to because he had to really get the truck woed down. And, uh, you know, Executioner... Coming back a good bit again, even taking that lead maybe a little bit heading into the final jump, but the part failure here, very unfortunate for Mark Hall. Samson's going to go on to round number two. One thing to point out here, too, is Dan Patrick is being interviewed. He's being interviewed by Dan Moriarty, and at the very end of it, I got a chuckle when I heard, thanks, Dan. Oh, no, thank you, Dan. Yeah, it's the Dan and Dan show here on Motor Madness. (laughs) There we go. We return from a commercial break, and we get one of the first mentions of the world finals from uh, Mike Hogwood here. First time we really hear that term on television right there and going into this event is obviously considered by many world finals, quote unquote, zero. Yeah, and uh, even though they had used the world finals name all the way back to the late 80s for pulling events and into the early 90s for the camel points finals, they called those the world finals as well. This is the first one that they really kind of acknowledge on television as being the world finals in this era. You know, prior to this, uh, the last actual World Finals named show that they had would have been the 94 points finals. 95, 96, 97, 98, it was all just kind of for show, you know, with U.S. Mm-hmm. Hot Rod. They were kind of just doing those weekend events, no point series, nothing really to chase other than the win and bragging rights for next week. But here at 99, point series, points finals, it's the World Finals in terms of Monster Jam, and that's how the, they choose to acknowledge it. Next race, Jim Kohler and Avenger taking on Brian Womack and Barefoot. This is the first time you're going to see Avenger on Motor Madness. 
Kohler's kind of painted here as a virtual unknown, whereas Barefoot, obviously one of the superstars here, even though most people might not know Brian Womack, they do know the truck that he's driving. Barefoot's been a superstar all season, especially with Todd Frolic behind the wheel. Mike Dropic drove one of the shows as well in Seattle earlier in the season. So we get to see a lot of the different Barefoot trucks. Uh, this time we get to see Womack behind the wheel. And as we mentioned earlier, his hometown show here in St. Louis for him himself, and he's going up against what is basically a newcomer at the time in Jim Kohler and Avenger. Womack's going to take the early lead over the cars. Avenger launches over those cars, and it's one of those things with that tr that old Avenger truck. He would hit the cars, it would almost seem like the rear would just keep falling out from under it, and the truck wanted to almost wheelie in the air over the cars. Kohler's going to do a nice nose-high launch right here. He's going to land and bounce into a little bit of a wheelie before he has to go into the corner, and it's going to hurt his entry and really the exit of the corner here. And basically, from that point on, Hands the win to Barefoot. Kohler's got a lot of rear steering issues, too, by the way. He goes into that first turn, almost doesn't even look like he has any rear steering. And at the second turn, same issue for Jim. Yeah, and this is something that Jim would go on to mention later and later throughout the 2000 season, that this rear steering is just something they could not get completely dialed in on the Avenger Chevrolet. And he would eventually get it figured out later into the 2000 season. But here we see... Jim's pretty much only got front steering for the most part. He has to back up in the second turn. The suspension looks a little loose, and the truck's just not quite dialed in at this point. Again, Jim's pretty new to the overall big stadium environment. He's done a few of them, but not on any kind of course like this. Also to point out, Avenger at this point in the early stage of uh, seeing it, it, it's seeing its start of its evolution on television anyway, it's it stands out because of just the sheer amount of green that there is but at the same time it's almost like oh it's a cool truck it's not until a few years later when he puts that 57 chevy body on there that old looking just awesome big bubbly looking body that he has and that he's ran until this to this current day that avenger is going to really start getting noticed by a lot of people but here he still puts on a heck of a show for these guys. I mean, the, the wheelie launch over the cars, he kind of slows down. at the After he knows he's lost the race, he slows down over the roller hill and tries to do the same thing again to finish out the event or finish out the race, but he doesn't quite get it. He kind of just climbs and rolls over the cars. Still, a showman in the early days is Jim Kohler. Oh, for sure. And Jim, I kind of allude to uh, like a Dennis Anderson light for the time Jim would always go out and still put on a show no matter whether he won or lost or went out first round he was going to make sure the fans went home happy he always put on crazy freestyles even back in these days so it's good to see that Jim has really stuck with it throughout these kind of early and more difficult years of his career in terms of the success that he has on track to where he's one of the absolute superstars and top names in the industry today Brian Womack in his interview right here is going to say the truck is running very well and he's got Samson going into round number two. He mentions that they flipped a coin for lane choice between he and Dan and Barefoot's going to be back in the same lane that it just ran. It makes you wonder if they did that the entire night that they flipped. Did they flip coins for lane choice? Oh, who knows? <laughs> yeah. um, That'd be a question for somebody to actually work there, but I'd like to know that. I mean, you have a blind draw right here. How do you determine lane choice? I'd imagine they probably lined them up, whatever the first name was, probably got the left lane, and the second name that they pulled got the right lane, perhaps, but I wasn't there. I don't know, so I can only uh, just guess. 
Well, if I happen to run into Jim Kohler on tour this year at some point, I'm going to have to ask him. Maybe he would remember. Uh, it'd be nice to know that, how they determine lane choice here at this. That's just a question that popped into my head whenever I heard the mention of uh, the coin flip. I think that would be a very fair way to do it. But anyway, we'll move on. We'll go to the Little Tiger Mountaineer race right here. And uh, this race, to me, was an example of slow and steady wins the race. I don't know about you, Matt, but I thought... Man, this was actually a really good matchup on paper right here. We've got uh, Ryan Bartle, of course, in the Little Tiger Machine, and Robbie Gray in the Mountaineer. Uh, they start off with each other fairly even, but Little Tiger and Brian Bartle really start to push out a lead after the exit of the first corner. Robbie Gar- Robbie Gray, always really known as somebody that never really pushed his equipment extremely far. He always wanted to save the equipment here, whereas Little Tiger knew how to push his equipment, knew how far to push his equipment, but... In this instance right here, Little Tiger's actually going to push it just a little bit too far going into the last turn. Little Tiger going to roll over. And we saw this rollover highlighted a lot, by the way, in the early 2000s. Little Tiger going into the corner, hiking up and rolling over. Mountaineer's going to scoot onto the wind right here and go into round number two. Yeah, we're talking about two Patrick trucks here now. Where Little Tiger was, I believe, the first production Patrick chassis ever built because it's the old Magnum Force truck that Don mm-hmm. Van Lue had back in the day going up against one of the much newer. I, I'm not exactly sure what the name of the chassis is. I call it a Gen 1 Patrick where it has the square cradle. Mm-hmm. But um, Robbie Gray here in the in the Mountaineer kind of been out on the t- circuit for a number of years already, but hasn't gotten the exposure on TV. So as you said, Barthel out early in the lead and really didn't have to push it that hard in that second turn. He had the race pretty much covered and the thing just hikes up on him and it goes over. Robbie Gray kind of scoots past for the win. They allow him to finish the course and Bartle's out for the night. He's going to have to just come back and put on a show in freestyle if he can. Yeah, he said he was going to work to get it on in freestyle as far as uh, his interview went here. He also says that it appears that a steering cylinder went out on the truck and I think that's what really caused the rollover itself. I think that if the steering cylinder had not have gone out, the truck would have still hiked up on two wheels, but I think Bartle might have had an opportunity to at least save it. But when the steering cylinder goes out, he explains that the tires just continue to turn that one direction in away from the rollover and it just costs him and rolls the truck over. Yeah, you see the steering cylinder blow on the replay here, and the truck really was kind of too far gone at that point anyway as Brian tries to turn into the roll and that steering cylinder ends up letting go. But it's unfortunate that Brian takes this much damage here, tears up the body a whole bunch, but we're racing. You're going for the win, and Mountaineer's the one that actually goes on to round number two. Yeah, Mountaineer. Uh, when they go back to that replay, too, Robbie Gray and Mountaineer, he's very happy. He has an interview as well here, and as you put in your notes, it made me chuckle. Is the West Virginia Gene Patterson right here. Sounds an awful lot like Gene, and I agree with you. I do believe it. I think it might be the mustache that's kind of helping with the voice right there and helping get that Gene Patterson talk going on right there, but really rough over the uh, double portion on the backstretch for the Mountaineer. A real nasty hit. I mean, that had to hurt because he kind of noses the front end of the truck into that second jump where the landing is really just doesn't look like the truck's dialed in at all. Not even necessarily the truck setup, but I think Robbie's just not pushing the truck hard enough. And like I said, you mentioned it here in my notes, the hairstyle and the mustache, I think, really allude to the look where he kind of looks a lot like our friend Gene Patterson. Yeah, he kind of does. We need to get a side-by-side comparison of Gene and Robbie Gray. Somebody out there can make that happen. (laughs) Next up, though, we've got King Crunch and Reptoid. One thing I was a little surprised at at the beginning of this show is we had talked about their field of favorites that they stood by and they talked to uh, before they got into the racing portion of the event right here. And King Crunch was not on that list. That was a big surprise for me. Scott Stevens, a guy who's been around a very long time, 
almost a little bit shaded right there, I thought, at the beginning of the show. I could probably agree with that assessment because King Crunch is still a top name in the industry at this time. Scott Stevens is one of the names you recognize when you pull into a show and you see that King Crunch is there, you know they're going to be competitive. Yeah, exactly. This time now, though, he's got the Reptoid machine with Jim Jack behind the wheel. And another interesting note, King Crunch sporting a Dodge body now. As we see, uh, Reptoid's data sheet is listed as a Linko, Linko in it. I kind of like, agree with you. Yeah, okay, sure. It's a Linko engine. It's got a lot of horsepower. Yeah, exactly. Got a ton of horsepower. He just doesn't know how to use it. But anyway. Whereas, does it have a lot of torques power? There, we could say that as well. Uh, I do have to say, though, both of these trucks are built incredibly well. Uh, but Reptoid, another one of those guys, Jim Jack, never really known for pushing his equipment extremely hard. And you can kind of see Jim ex- exactly why here. Reptoid's going to take that first turn really gingerly while in the other lane, King Crunch pushes it a little too hard. He actually has to back the truck up. He misses the turn completely to Scott Stevens, backs the truck up, and then heads down the straightaway. And then even more problems from King Crunch as we get another highlight that we've seen for a number of years as he lands off the double the left front tire just says nope i don't need to be on here anymore slams up into that new dodge body just completely crushes the left side of the cab of that truck and then uh, king crunch rolls to a stop and we just see the tire keep rolling and eventually bounce off the safety hold at the end of the track it's a really nasty hit that we kind of see in the background as we see Reptoid heading into the second turn. And I applaud whatever direction the guys were given when they were recording the audio here. I don't think they were doing it live to tape, even though they were in person. I think they still did it in the studio afterwards that they kind of point out, oh, man, King Crunch is in trouble. You see it on the back of your screen. And then they kind of switch to that shot that's ISOed on King Crunch. And the damage is already done as the tires kind of rolling away what a nasty nasty bit of luck for scott stevens here dodge is sponsoring the event they've got the new dodge body on king crunch as we see the replay the the run looks you know kind of okay the first half he keeps it low over the cars you mentioned he has to spin and get it backed up but the suspension looks like it's working okay i don't know if the truck just was worn out or what the deal was the axle just fails when he lands it's not that nasty of a hit to me well it's uh one of those things though if you can't dodge it ram it at least when he lands the when the truck lands and breaks the tire off actually it kind of it's like insult to injury almost the dodge breaks the tire off and then runs the tire runs through a dodge banner (laughs) oh it just completely kills the a-frame it just ruins the advertising for the whole event exactly ruin the whole dodge advertisement right there but early in, we actually get a little bit of a glimpse right here into what would happen later in the King Crunch life cycle as we see the crew chief for the time for King Crunch, David Smith, pop up here and explain that the planetary just blew apart. It looked like maybe it was just worn out parts on King Crunch that caused the issue. That's very possible. And it, you could almost say maybe it's the way that the truck landed. It doesn't seem like Scott is really on throttle. But even if you land off throttle, the truck should not have that much of a parts failure um that jump was not that big he lands on the flat which isn't that bad i mean it's not really any bigger of a jump than you do over the cars so i think it's just an unfortunate parts breakage that maybe went undiagnosed prior maybe the parts were cracked before and they finally let loose on that jump 
Yeah, that's what I would think is just a, a week or a worn out part just gave way right there on King Crunch to cause that issue. Made for a good highlight for uh, Monster Jam to play over and over. I don't know if it was a good highlight for uh, Scott Stevens, as Scott Hartz or excuse me, Scott Douglas points out. Moving to our next race though. Speaking of Scott Hartsock, Gunslinger to be taking on Cyborg right here, and arguably I have to say that Cyborg is the most unique vehicle in this entire field. Oh, it's got to be. It's two-wheel drive. You've got independent front suspension. And this is my favorite look for Cyborg because he's running the old Dodge body at this point with the wing on top, kind of. And I just, I love that look. The red setup. It's nice. It's simple. It's clean. And it lets the truck kind of be the star in its design. And it's just something that Jack ran for so long, this front wheel, or excuse me, rear wheel drive truck with front independent suspension. And once the body got more and more complex with all the doodads and attachments that were on it, I think it kind of took away from the uniqueness of the truck's design itself. Yeah, I kind of agree with you there. Uh, this design that we have right here actually works very well in just showing off what's underneath the body. A lot of guys at this time were kind of, yes, they would have something that stood out and it was unique, but it was mostly the body style that stood out and was unique, and everything underneath was starting to become more uniform as far as the industry would go. Coburner's truck, it was more of a star underneath the body than it was with the actual body on it, honestly, because when you would look around, you see all these other trucks, oh, that, the solid axles in the front and the rear, and then all of a sudden, what the heck is that out of the corner of your eye in the corner in the back part of the pit party over here? What is this thing? And you just look at the front suspension on it, and you go, man, that is so interesting. It makes you wonder if you could ever got it to work in four-wheel drive how well the truck would have ran. I think it would have ran even better if he'd have found a way to make that work. And we know that we've got the T-Max truck out there now today that has four-wheel independent suspension. And for a very low-dollar independent operation, they do a great job with that truck, and it really handles well. So I'd have loved to have seen Jack be able to make a four-wheel drive version of this truck, kind of like a an off-road desert racer with the independent front suspension, solid rear axle. We've He's going up against, again, like we said, one of these up-and-coming stars, though. Scott Hartsock is the only multi-event winner this year other than Gravedigger, and he breaks out to an early lead, and we see a camera focus on Scott throughout the majority of this run, and it's really impressive to see as they go back coming out of the last turn, they go back to the wide camera shot, Cyborg is right with them. Yeah, two-wheel drive, front independent suspension truck here, Cyborg and Jack Coburna keeping up with a guy that has won two events on this TNM Points Championship. But I got to tell you, it's just not enough, though. He didn't have enough. He wasn't. He, he was right there with him, but when he comes out of the corner, he just doesn't have enough to keep up with the big independent four-wheel, or excuse me, the, <laughs> I keep getting my words crossed up here with this independent suspension that we got in this other lane over here with Coburna. But uh, Gunslinger's going to land and just go and shoot straight through to the finish line, while Coburna's got a little bit of an issue kind of settling a little bit after the bump. Yeah, and as we see the ISO shot on Cyborg, we then realize that Jack hit the pole in the first corner, which is now mm -hmm. not a DQ in this event, it's worth noting. Due to the controversies they'd had earlier in the season, they made it to where this track only has time penalties. So you get a time penalty if you knock down a pole, a time penalty if you miss an obstacle, and Jack is kind of out of it, even though he makes a, a good look race of it, he was out of it pretty early because he took that time penalty, and we see the difference as compared to the Mountaineer race, Jack kind of does the same thing over that double jump where he kind of noses the front end into it. And we see that independent front suspension work very well. It soaks up that hit a lot better than Mountaineer did. Oh, yeah, it soaks it up incredibly well. I was about to point out that same thing. 
Uh, if you get a chance to go back and watch this show, it's on YouTube. It's not on the Monster Jam subscription channel. It's actually for free out there on YouTube if you'd like to go watch it. I believe it's uh, hate. Uh, I can't remember the numbers at the end of it. I want to say Hate Breeder on there. I believe it's Michael Disroach's channel. Look that up. This is the same episode me and Matt watched to uh, cover this event here. He's got both the first and second broadcast from St. Louis on there to watch. Of course, we're covering the first one at this one. Next week's show will be the second event, uh, the second televised show for St. Louis. No, 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 no. Next week is Monster Trucks 2000. Uh, I correct myself. Yes. Okay. Monster Trucks 2000. But uh, when you look at it and you actually see this head on shot, it's incredible to watch that suspension. Even for 1999 standards, how well it soaks up this. Uh, so soaks up the bump after the double. It just lands directly on it like it's not even there. It really does a good job. You know, we get down here to talk to Scott Hartsock at the end of this race. He says, man, it's intimidating out there. He wants to win the thing, even if he's got to shoot somebody in the back. It's typical gunslinger for you right there, wouldn't you think? Scott Hartsock, another classic interview right there. Carolina Crusher is going to be out here next, taking on the Bust and Loose machine. Ron Nelson is a guy that a lot of people might remember back in the day. It's actually this event that he's remembered for. We'll talk about that after this race. But uh, Scott says he's got this has a potential to be an outstanding race. And Scott Douglas is absolutely 100% correct right here. Ron Nelson has maybe not the same equipment to par as Gary Porter, but it's pretty evenly matched equipment, I would think. Crusher's going to grab the literally lead into the first turn. He gets through it a little smoother than Nelson. Gary mentioned, or Gary maintains the lead the rest of the lap. He actually takes a four-truck length victory at the end of it here, but we're going to see why in the other lane maybe Ron Nelson took the last turn a little bit slow when we go to the replay. He actually is not straight coming out of the second turn. The rear steer is cocked. It's like the self-centering didn't work, and the truck is like crab-walking down the straightaway. He jumps and actually catches the right rear on one of the jumps that is for the Pro Stadiums or Quad Wars on the other side, and it pushes Bustin' Loose up into a little bit of a nosedive going into the last turn, and that's what cost Ron Nelson a lot of time. That's what we talked about earlier. You got to make sure you're lined up perfectly for going down that back chute because we see it here with Ron. He catches those pro stadium jumps and the quad wars jumps, and it really gets him out of shape that he has to kind of recover and manually work that rear steer back and forth to kind of get himself back on track. Porter, if he really pushed the truck harder, could have had an even bigger lead, but Gary's a veteran. He's not going to push that truck any harder than he has to. Yeah, and if Gary knows he's got the lead, he's not going to push the truck as hard as he's as hard as he really needs to, as hard as he has to. He's just going to push it that way. I'll put it that way. <laughs> uh, Gary basically says the rear suspension's hitting pretty hard, and they'll have to run the truck harder to take on Gunslinger in the next round. That's a race that I've got circled for the second show here that we need to really pay attention to. Uh, Ron Nelson, though, not done with highlights on this show. Later in the event or later in the uh, portion of the broadcast, we're going to see one of the most famous things that happened in early Monster Jam. And it's one of the event, uh, things that got highlighted for quite a bit up until High Roller did it a few years later with, uh, I believe, Neil Elliott behind the wheel. But Ron Nelson's going to start to go into a donut in the freestyle portion of this event. It's going to hike up onto two wheels and he's going to do a crab walking sideways trying to save it basically but it's crab walking on two wheels for quite a little bit before they finally hit the button and busting loose rolls over yeah ron always went out to put on a show and he would often try to do a donut and sometimes it didn't work out i can remember i think it was san diego in 98 with the off-road race he managed to roll the truck over kind of in a similar fashion, trying to do a donut, and the truck just went over on him there. Here, he tries to drive it out. He turns into it with the front steering, but he didn't get that rear steering turned around quick enough. He kind of crab walks, as you said, on two wheels and goes over, and they're going to use that throughout a couple years of highlight reels. And 
Ron Nelson makes his mark here in Bust and Loose. The truck kind of lives up to its known its own name, if you will. It didn't quite bust loose enough in the dirt to be able to avoid that rollover right there. Bulldozer and Equalizer is up next. And if there was one matchup I had circled in this round one right here, it was this matchup right here. We've got David Morris, a veteran of a number of years, 1989 TNT points champion, driving the same chassis that won that championship. Very familiar with his piece of equipment. But in the other lane, we've got Bill Mintz horsepower piloting the bulldozer machine with Tom Mintz behind the wheel, a guy we talked about just a couple weeks ago on this show in Pittsburgh that had a wild ride in a mud race that really put his name out there and put his name into a lot of people's mouths. Now here in 1999, he's driving the bulldozer machine. He's upset a lot of these guys on this circuit by coming out here and just flat winning right out of the box. Now he's got one of the top trucks on the circuit in round number one of quote unquote, your world finals. I love the way that Scott Douglas kind of builds the story here where he says 10 years ago, David Morrison equalizer is the hottest new thing on the circuit. And then he kind of transitions that into going up against Tom, who's the new hot shoe in the sport. Even though he's been around a little while, he's really elevating his game. So I love the way that Scott builds this story between these two competitors, how they have similar trajectories in their career, just at different points because Equalizer are now the established name, whereas Bulldozer and Tom Mentz, kind of that upstart that David Morris was a full decade earlier. Yeah, and uh, one thing to point out here, too, is yes, Equalizer is the Chuck. It's the same chassis that won the 1989 points championship, but it has not seen an incredibly long course, really probably since Louisville on that big figure eight track. This is a pretty long course. It's got a lot of jumps on it, and uh, despite the older suspension design that Equalizer has, it's still at a little bit of a disadvantage to the suspension that's on the bulldozer machine in the other lane. And you see that very quickly with the Equalizer's older suspension design causing it to bounce a little bit more going into the corner, whereas Bulldozer Tom just sends it over the cars and he lines up straight for the corner and makes a fantastic turn. But Morris also makes a fantastic turn, making this a race down the back straightaway. We get back to that wide shot. We see the final turn between these guys, and it is tight until we see David Morris just clip that pro stadium truck jump. And that's enough to cost him just enough time for Mintz to scoot past him in that no man's between the roller and the final set of cars. That last corner, man, David cut it so tight that he may have cut it a little bit too tight. As you mentioned, he gets up on that big roller for the pro stadium trucks, and that kind of kills his momentum through that second corner and getting on to the final straightaway. We see that the suspension here on Equalizer just not well suited for the steeper type obstacles that this track entails when we go back and look at a lot of the usa motorsports races those ramps were a lot more mellow and they kind of had a more transition to them where the truck stayed on the ground a little bit longer and the truck could kind of float over the obstacles the truck really excelled in that aspect where the wheels could stay on the ground drive forward because equalizer had just a ton of forward traction the way it was designed whereas here the truck's getting pitched up into the air and the suspension is just too stiff and not enough travel for these newer, steeper obstacles a full decade later. Yeah, and the men's truck is working flawlessly in the other lane. Of course, it's basically a Jack Woman designed chassis that's on top or that's underneath this bulldozer body. It is. It's Tom Taurus. Has right here. Taurus number four. Yeah, there we go. Taurus number four basically coming out here and putting a whipping on a lot of these newer style trucks that we have out here as Tom Mintz is going to move into round number two. But the next race right here is basically your points championship decider is we do have a little bit of a battle in points right here. However, first and second in points racing each other in round number one right here. 
basically the situation is this. If Dennis Anderson wins, he locks up the points championship. If Mosh Patrol wins, he's got to go, I believe, all the way to the final in order to secure the points championship and steal it away from North Carolina's Dennis Anderson's gravedigger. At least we've got something to race for here. You know, the championship is not wrapped up at this point, and it's kind of interesting. Monster Patrol is kind of billed as the other superstar of USHRA at this time. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because Gravedigger and Monster Patrol, both black and green, both very unique identities. And they were kind of the two top names on the TV commercials. Uh, Monster Patrol kind of almost as big as Gravedigger to a point because they kind of needed somebody to fill that void left by Bigfoot for the 99 season as Bigfoot's no longer with USHRA at this point. So they're kind of elevating a lot of these other trucks, Barefoot, Carolina Crusher, and Monster Patrol is definitely one of those. And a lot of that was built on the back of Tom Mentz, Mm -hmm. who kind of went a little crazier than Paul Schaefer did at a lot of the events. Paul had the newer equipment. He created the truck, but Tom was out there every week really grinding and making a name for himself and for that truck throughout the mid-90s. Yeah, a lot of the highlights that you would see uh, from Mosh Patrol in the late 90s weren't real. And there's no offense to Paul Schaefer. They really weren't Paul Schaefer driving. They were Tom Mintz highlights. It just happened to be his truck. It speaks to Paul's experience because Paul – most of the time just didn't crash as much. Yeah, uh, exactly. Paul put in good, smooth winning runs a lot of the time, winning a lot of races. And as a result, it was Tom's shots that made it on the highlight reel, wheels breaking off, spinning the thing into a donut upside down, crushing the wing down every other week, it seemed. Paul's got a couple big crash highlights, but a lot of what Paul did was known as just going out, running strong, taking the wins. And that's where his success was built and where we have now two again, black and green trucks kind of being the superstars in USHRA competition. Yeah. And I, one thing that I just kind of popped into my head as you were talking there, uh, the true life of Tom Mintz DVD years ago that was released by monster jam. I believe it's out there on YouTube. You can find it now, but uh, Paul Schaefer does have a quote in there that kind of just describes Tom Mintz's driving style compared to his really Paul basically uh, put Tom behind the wheel of the monster patrol truck at one event. I want to say, it was, a, it was an outdoor straight line track. I don't know if it was West Lebanon or Hagerstown uh, off the top of my head. I can't remember which two it was. But he basically told Tom he wanted him to go out there. He wanted to roll over the first hill, let out of the throttle, build it up through the straightaway, and then hit the final jump. And whenever he watched the race, Tom was full throttle at the start, full throttle over the cars, full throttle over the second set of cars, and won the race. So that tells you Tom Mintz didn't really listen to Paul Schaefer all that much when it came to throttle. Well... Tom was going to keep his foot in it no matter what, I guess. Exactly. It, it worked for him in the mud. I guess maybe he figured it worked for him in the monster truck, too. And it did. Tom won a ton of races in the monster patrol, and he was always willing to fix whatever damage he created to that truck. He would, of course, buy the truck itself from Paul Schaefer somewhere mm-hmm. around 97 or so, I think, is mm-hmm. when he actually bought the chassis from Paul and continued to run the monster patrol name. So it really was kind of an independent operation, just leasing the big name. Uh, Tom and and Bill, his father, did as well. And then Tom gets hooked up with U.S. Hot Rod here for 99 as they now have the bulldozer name in their corporate arsenal to where Tom can kind of run that name and get his foot in the door with the company that way. 
Exactly. Paul Schaefer's going to, like we were talking earlier, coming into this round, who is the only guy that can mathematically take the points championship from Dennis Anderson's Gravedigger. He has to win to keep his hopes alive, though. Digger's going to get the jump into the first stretch of this track, but Noose is kind of hard over the cars. Dennis takes a wide turn, but he maintains a lot of momentum, whereas Schaefer cuts the turn tight, and he gets out of shape a little bit. His entry to the corner reminded me a lot of what we saw with Scott Stevens and King Crunch earlier in the evening, except Paul does get around the turning pole. He doesn't have to stop and back up. It uh, does slow down the momentum quite a bit for Paul, though, and just hands a giant lead to Dennis and Gravedigger right here. And Dennis is going to go on to basically cruise to victory and basically secure the first championship for the Gravedigger machine. That first hit that Dennis takes is really nasty because the front end bounces and then the rear end bounces after it's, Dennis is having these problems with his back already, you know, from this shot that he took in New Orleans a number of weeks earlier. So Dennis kind of uh, playing a little bit of a dangerous game, sending the truck that hard over the first set of cars. He wants that points championship, though. He makes a killer second turn, just slings the rear end out on the Gravedigger machine. Yeah, Dennis has a fantastic run here, but like you said, that first hit noses into the ground hard. There was that New Orleans accident that has been, it was highlighted for a number of years as well, where he hits that center portion of the sand drag track, that concrete barrier, the truck launches way up high into the air into a wheelie and then just curves in the air and comes straight down onto the nose. You could almost call that the original lawn dart from Dennis and Gravedigger right there. And then uh, a little bit, I believe the week before in Seattle, you put in your notes as well that Dennis had retired the Gravedigger number eight machine. And by the way, if you haven't seen that highlight, go out and go out of your way to try and find Dennis retiring Digger eight in the kingdom. That is some classic Dennis Anderson and Gravedigger right there. He just about jumped the Gravedigger out of the kingdom that night at the USA, or excuse me, U.S. Off-Road Championship Series event. They was the last motorsports event in the kingdom. The plan was to retire Gravedigger 8 as well at that show, so they flew Dennis in. He kind of destroyed the truck and the track and his back, unfortunately, all in one shot. So he is a little bit sore here this week. It's been a rough season for Dennis on his back, and they would, of course, bring Gravedigger 8 back. They wouldn't retire it. They'd have it ready for the year 2000, and it would run for a number more years, and then it kind of got preserved and did the museum tour in 2002, 2003, 2004, and then got revamped again for the Cedar Fair attraction that they have going on right now. So Digger 8 still out there with the colors and thankfully has not gone by the wayside and rusted in peace as some of the other trucks have yeah eight and seven are two of the trucks that always kind of sat on the property over there as your mid-90s classic looking gravedigger pieces that sat over there after the uh, museum tour i believe the digger eight kind of just kind of sat there again on the property and you could see the wear and tear getting to it and then they revamped it again for this cedar fair that you're talking about right there where they've got the monster team ride trucks over there and I got to tell you, it, it looks good. It's it's nice to see old trucks get restored, especially classic Gravediggers, which I'm always going to be a fan of seeing get restored. By the way, when you guys get done with Grandma, let me know. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I really do love the fact that Dennis mentions that, hey, that kind of hurt him just a little bit right there. And it's going to basically allude into kind of the beginning of 2000, where Dennis kind of takes a little bit of a back seat for a bit. Yeah, he hurts the back again pretty bad in 2000. He hurts it late in the summer in 99, and that's why we don't see him in the seat at the beginning of the 2000 season. In the November show at Minneapolis, Todd Frolics in Digger 12 because Dennis hurt himself at an air show. So mm-hmm. just the, the back problems continuing here for Dennis Anderson, and this is kind of the start of it here in this late 99 season. And thankfully, he would eventually get the back 
all the way recovered and somewhere in the you know mid 2001 range and would it go on to of course win multiple championships but uh, that kind of wraps it up here for this first round of monster truck competition but the show's not over yet we've got the biggest pro stadium truck track i've ever seen yeah this is a giant pro stadium truck track here uh they have some really classic names by the way racing right here as well we got thomas ray white who rolls the truck over and basically keeps going right afterwards some we'd see a lot out of tom mince later in his career in the, the maximum destruction goldberg machines team mince as well you could put on that list of trucks that he just rolled over and kept going in but uh thomas ray white's gonna end up being your national champion right here despite the rollover uh, Shane Ballard flips his zebra truck as well, but the final's going to come down to Kyle Walton and Chevy Plus taking on Rick Armbrust and Weekend Warrior. Both trucks are going to have a great final turn right here on this giant course, and it's going to be a photo finish at the line with the wind going to Armbrust. Uh, man, I got to tell you, I have seen Rick Armbrust drive for most of his career when you would go back and you would watch some of these outdoor events that a lot of these uh, pro stadium trucks raced on. He's going to eventually go on to get a Rancho sponsorship. And that's going to follow him to the end of his pro stadium truck racing career. He almost won his very last race, by the way, as well. I was at the event in Indianapolis where he pushed it extremely hard to try to win on that S course, nosedived off the last hit. He sold the truck a little bit before that, nosedives, lands, and just, just completely obliterates the truck, basically, and the truck catches on fire. So uh, sorry to the guy that just bought that piece because uh, I think Rick had to do a lot of work to get it back to him. He did. You know, we saw the beginnings of Rick Armbrust in his career on the TNM Motor Madness show early on with what oh, he it was at a Bronco. He was driving a, a later model, large, so, yeah. large body Bronco that he had. And he kind of got more competitive with it throughout those two years. And then here in 99, he builds. Well, it was for the middle of 98. He built the race truck. He continues to improve with it, takes the win here, goes on him and his son end up racing on the Jamboree circuit and, and they just swept everything. It seemed like for a number of years, totally dominated everybody in the competition. So Rick Armbrust really one of the guys that is super, super successful in pro arena, tough truck, whatever you want to call it, this kind of street truck racing. And one of the guys that probably doesn't get enough of his due as one of the true stars of this discipline in these kinds of shows because he was on top for a very very long time yes he was and it just so happened that right at the end of uh you would the time you would start seeing pro stadium trucks kind of disappear from the bigger stadiums is when arm Bruce really started to pick up and become such a uh a championship kyle competitor out there racing these vehicles whenever these pro stadium trucks would end up being what do you call them pro stadiums pro arenas or just tough trucks in general uh arm Bruce would be one of those guys that would continue to build these, these vehicles along the way at different promoters and not necessarily making it on TV quite a lot of the time, but still one of those guys that always was talked about, at least in our circles. Uh, I don't don't really ever hear his name get brought up outside of like the true fan circle, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and let's not neglect our second place finisher here with the Chevy Plus. That truck has got the coil spring suspension full mm-hmm. of tennis balls. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a very, very different setup from what Armbrust has, but they both kind of get the job done to a degree. Exactly. I mean, it's the old adage, like we were talking uh, a long time ago on this show, between Bigfoot and Equalizer. One was built with the pencil, the other was built with the computer, it seems like. Armbrust has this really awesome Rancho suspension setup that's underneath the truck, working quite great for him. The guy in the other lane's got tennis balls to help him stop. 
Yeah, I mean, whatever it takes to get it done, that's this kind of racing. And I just love that they're going over this big monster hill at the beginning and the end of each run. It kind of reminds reminds me of the monster trucks in Pontiac in 91 going over a similar just really big hill you had to physically drive up over the top and back down. We finished the tough truck segment right here, by the way. I love that hill, too, by the way. That was a giant, giant hill that they had to go over. For the uh, before the finish of the tough trucks, but we move on. We go into the jargon jam, and we cover our favorite terms from this season. And of course, Dan Patrick likes Gary Porter's canoeter and rod reference. I've made that reference before quite a bit. I even had my sister just looked at me like, "What is a canoeter and rod?" And I'm like, "Well, that is what helps your vehicle canoeter." Yeah, yeah. The canoeter and rod is definitely the the term, if you will, that a lot of the guys bring up here in this season-ending what's your favorite jargon jam that we've had throughout the whole season. And if you're wondering what a canoeter and rod really is, it's a sway bar link that runs Mm -hmm. from your axle to your sway bar. Your car at home has them. um, So if you have an issue and you need to replace your sway bar links, which happens, you know, between 80, 100,000 miles on a lot of cars, walk into your advanced auto parts or AutoZone and say, hey, I need a pair of canoeter and rods for my car and see what they say. The employees there these days probably won't have a clue what you're talking about, but the old school employees that might be in the back, they know exactly what you're talking about. They'll ask uh, you, is that for a four-wheel drive or two-wheel drive? Exactly. They'll know exactly. They'll just type it in the computer, and then they won't be able to find it. But anyway, David Morris is up next year with another quote that I love, and is, when in doubt, stand on it. Yeah, and they uh, they did a lot of these jargon jams throughout the season, and I always liked the, uh, the hog's head. And which is your your third member in your rear end. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of different uh, terms that they used throughout the season. Dennis says his favorite is the one that we're going to make history or be history. And um, Porter kind of gives up that the Canuder and Rod was actually a David Morris creation back in the day. So D- Gary uh, rightfully doesn't take ownership of it. He says, I got that from David Morris. And David kind of does a little goofy take for the camera, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a good little segment they did right there. A good way to, to kind of work your way out of the show by talking to some of the drivers and asking them some of their favorite quotes that they might have heard over the years. Uh, we cut to our Maalox Minute for Monster Jam here, and it's of course, it's got to be King Crunch breaking the wheel off. You could make an argument for uh, the little Tiger rollover, but man, King Crunch breaking the wheel off right here. That was just, it was unexpected. Little Tiger's rollover, when it hops up on two wheels, you're almost expecting him to save it, and he doesn't. You're like, oh, but the King Crunch was just an impact. So I thought they picked a great one right here for this Maalox Minute. Uh, if it's going to give you heartburn, you need that Maalox. I'd say that Scott Stevens had a lot of heartburn on this night. He does a lot of damage. He gets assaulted by his own tire twice. The thing comes up into the cabin. It's a good thing Scott didn't have his arms hanging out the cage or anything like that, trying to point at anybody, because that could have been pretty dangerous, having a big 66-inch tire on wheel assembly come up and smack the side of the cage like that. And so, not to mention all the fiberglass that got crunched in as well into the oh, side yeah. of the truck as well. The good thing he had he did have his hands in Side the vehicle at all times while riding the King Crunch down that straightaway. Show number two is going to continue with the final eight trucks that are left here, but that's going to be do it. That'll be it for us right here on this episode of the Retro Monster Truck Review. We do get to see some footage here at the end of the show. We get to see some freestyle footage from Avenger and Bustin' Loose, and this, of course, is the rollover we recruited earlier yep. about Bustin' Loose popping up and doing basically the crab walk sidewalk until the truck just finally has to be shut off and rolls over that's the end of the show right there but going out of show one what is your takes going into the next week well i'm interested to see what the lineups here are going to be for round number two you know these tnn shows in 1999 they would kind of run through the first few rounds of racing and then they would 
give us the semis and the finals in week number two. Here, we only got through the first round because it's such a large field of trucks. So we've only got the first round done. The The competition's still wide open. Eight trucks left in the competition going into week number two from St. Louis. So I'd say we should probably maybe hold off on our ratings until we have this event completely finished. What do you say? Yeah, I agree, agree with you right there as well. I think we should hold off on the ratings until we get the entire basically two-hour television broadcast between St. Louis here digested into our systems a little bit. By the way, happy holidays, everybody. This show is coming out the week after Christmas, by the way. We're recording it the week before, so hey, we're going to wish everybody happy holidays to end the show. For sure, and we kind of finish things off here with the jam. We get some freestyle footage from Jim Kohler and Avenger putting the nose to the sky and putting on a good show. As we mentioned earlier, we see also Ron Nelson and Bustin' Loose doing that rollover, as you said. This is how they kind of round out the show each week was with the jam and a lot of these different clips that we wouldn't have gotten to see otherwise. I always liked the jam. It was a cool way to finish up the TV show. It was a cool way to finish up the show, but as myself as a fan, and I know you probably were like this as well, yes, it was cool to finish the show, but at the same time, you almost wanted you wanted to see more, and that's where the freestyle broadcasts started to come from where the first broadcast would be your racing portion of the show and your second broadcast would be freestyle these ending portions of this were so good that it brought on an entire hour-long broadcast of freestyle in the next year yeah and it's i didn't like the format itself in 1999 the way that they broke up the racing bracket this way so i was a very welcome change for 2000 where we got all the racing in one night all the freestyle on the next night of tv coverage so i like that format better of course you know they've condensed everything down nowadays into a lot of into a one-hour format but they kind of make it work and this is kind of entering into where tnn's figuring out how to produce this show it was the first year with us hot rod they've got the existing contract where they've got this motor madness show they kind of found a way to make it work but they really dial it in for the year 2000 that they do and they're they're really starting to get the hang of it here by the way uh, the Nashville 99 episode that myself and Dan Agosh did, I was triggered throughout that whole episode just watching it. I mean, it just did not seem like it was put together very well. So far with the St. Louis broadcasts, I feel like I've watched a professionally broadcasted racing event. And I hope that continues going forward into the next show. We're going to round this one off here, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, next week, you got to be tuning in for Monster Trucks 2000 to start your year off, right? Oh, for sure. It's the new Thrillinium heading into the new year for us. And we're going to get back to week two at St. Louis at some point. Exactly. We'll talk to you guys then on the tracks across America. St. Louis ribs just aren't that good, though. I'm from the area and I can agree. Baby back ribs are where it's at. This is true. One bone the whole way through.